Good morning, everyone. Uh, do we have anyone with announcements today? <laughs> You've got an announcement. All right. Uh, oh, yes, we have the yard sale next Saturday from 8 till 12. And I think it's going to be a big one because we've got lots of stuff. And is that it? All right, everyone, the call to worship this morning is, uh, well, first off, I want to welcome you all, and uh, we've got old friends here and new ones, and uh, we want to give a big welcome to everyone. Our call to worship this morning is from Galatians three twelve. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed... You are called in one body and thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning you've given us today. A day we can come and worship in your house and sing your praises and worship your word, Lord. We pray that you'll open all our hearts and minds to receive the message that Pastor Chris has uh, prepared for us. And we ask for your blessings as we worship you, Lord. Amen. All right, let's all stand and sing number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. the uh, Apostles' Creed, Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He had descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From since you come to judge the quick and the dead, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now we'll do the responsive reading. Uh, I'll uh, read the first verse and uh, we'll alternate. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have good. As the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood will not go out, or take their names from my lips. The Lord has chosen chosen portion in my cup. You hold my may not lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh always also dwells secure. You make me known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now we'll do the questions from the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. I'll read the question and we'll all do the answer. Question number 63. What are the special privileges the visible church? Being protected and preserved of all ages, notwithstanding opposition of all enemies, and enjoy the communion of saints, the ordinary means of salvation, and the first words whoever believes and testifies. Excluding none that will come before him. Question number 64. What is the invisible church? The invisible church is a whole number of selected that have been, are, and shall be garnered into the Question number 65. What special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy Christ? By Christ. Question 66. What is the union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace whereby spirit yet every blessing. Join the church, which is done in their effectual Thank you, Howie. Welcome, saints. That's y'all. To put it in the vernacular. Now, when I call you saints, you have to remember that the way the Bible uses saints isn't the way the church historically has used saints. It's actually okay to call somebody like Augustine a saint because he was one, as long as you don't think that you're not. Saint is just a word for a person indwelt by the Spirit of God and filled with his grace in such a way as that they have been saved from the second death. And so you are the saints, the people of God. As such, we have certain things that we do, and some of them seem a little funny to contemporary ears, mainly because of how much we've forgotten, not how much we've remembered. And so when we do things like confess our faith by using the Apostles' Creed, that's us standing up and saying, we are Christians, here's what we mean by that. And so there's a corporate confession of faith. 
And it does have some interesting words in there like Catholic, and Catholic is a good word, not a bad word, but we can talk about that later. At the same time, there are other things that we do when we come together to worship. So if you haven't had time to prepare your heart and mind for this time of worship, we also take this time to confess to the Lord our sins. Now, as we've talked about many times, there are two basic primary currents of American theology. One thinks that we are a holy people of God, kind of sinless, or at least getting to sinless sometime in this life. And the other thinks, no, we're not getting close. We're not good. We're not worthy of salvation. And yet God has given us a Christ that is worthy. And so we come together to confess ourselves as sinful people in need of the grace of God, not a perfected people for which the grace of God is merely an accoutrement. So at this time, you'll have a time of silence to prepare your heart before God and to confess to him just between you and him your personal and private sins. And at this time also we confess as a people of God, Christian, do you believe that you have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that you too have fallen short of the glory of God? We do. Then I simply declare to you what the scriptures declare, that if you have rested solely on the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ, denying any of your own, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled to your God. Amen? Amen. Amen. At this time, Lord God, we want to bring before you the particular petitions of this church, of this body of believers, of this instance of the visible church. We pray, Lord God, especially for Ava Roten, for Peggy Ford, for Ryan Paris, for Luann Paris, for Billy Paris. We pray, Lord God, for Helen McBride and remembering so many others, Lord God, that are suffering with serious illness, Lord God, we just pray that you would be with your people and bring about their healing and well-being in this life. I want to continue to pray for Mike Perkins, that he would get his medications straightened out, Lord God, and that you would bless him during this time and just preserve him and heal him. We want to continually offer praise for Min June and that he's doing well and growing as, a, as an infant, Lord God, but that you will grow him into a fine young man of God. We want to continue to pray for Jeanette, Lord God, for her continual recovery and, and the easing back of her pain and suffering, and we just pray that you would be with her with your grace in Jesus' name. We want to pray for John Ford for his recent heart surgery, and just pray, Lord God, that you would just restore him completely in the name of Jesus Christ. We want to continue to pray for Megan Paris for her complete recovery and well-being, also for the Maffet family as they're traveling, Lord God, but also for that tiny baby, Lord God, just that you would heal her completely and restore her in Jesus' name. We continue to pray for Howie's brother, that you would just be with him and heal him, Lord God, and grant him both spiritual and physical well-being in Jesus' name. We continue to pray for Pam Puckett's sister, that you would just be with her and help her transition into assisted care. For all of our number, Lord God, that are living in assisted care or in retirement facilities, we know that this situation, this time, has been hardest on them. And so we pray that you would just be with them and encourage them and strengthen them with the solid knowledge of your presence and power in their lives, that they have not been forgotten, Lord God, and that they are loved by you and us. In regard to other matters, Lord God, we pray for this church. We pray, Lord God, that you would just continue to bless her and that if any here are struggling with different financial difficulties or health difficulties which have not been mentioned, Lord, we know that you know each one of them and that you are our great provider and give us every morsel that comes to our mouth. At the same time, Lord God, you are our true and only doctor. And if you choose to work through the administrations of medications and doctors and nurses, then we pray that you would do that to bring about our health and well-being so that we might serve you better in this world. We also pray, Lord God, for presidents and princes and kings and those in positions of power and authority that you would guide them according to your royal law. We know that even the king's heart can be turned to the left or the right as you see fit. And so we pray that you would bring justice and righteousness in the land, Lord God, and that you would give us peace in our time. We also pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world that as your gospel is preached, that by the power of your spirit, 
Many would come to know you as Lord and Savior, and so know salvation, know grace and peace. And we pray this praying the prayer that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please rise. The song is in your order of service. the governor's COVID-19 policy, uh, 
we have the box at uh, back of the church. You can put your uh, tithes in. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've so blessed us in so many ways. Uh, we want to return just a portion of these uh, blessings to you that you can carry out your work. We can carry out your work uh, throughout the world. Amen. Please rise. Praise God for whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here. God and Father, from the great gifts that you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds, Lord God, to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So in this continuing journey through the church and talking about the church, eventually we get to issues of consternation, separation, heresy, and other fighting words. Now, today's verse is from Colossians chapter 3. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called to be one body and be thankful. Let's pray. Lord God, when your word is opened up, it shines in our hearts in such a way, Lord God. It has such gravity and such power, such weight and such energy that it's overwhelming to us. And so we have the tendency, Lord God, like Adam, when, when he was found naked, Lord God, to try to hide our eyes from you. But in this, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, impress upon us it's beauty. Allow your word into us in such a way that it becomes a part of the structure of our mind and heart so that we think in and through you and not through ourselves. We praise you, Lord God, for your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So people of God, the word of the day is chosen. In understanding the church, there are certain things that you're going to have to grapple with that are some of the most fundamental and disturbing philosophical issues in the entire history of the world. If you go back to Plato and Aristotle and other guys with interesting Greek names, you find that they grappled with these same things, and yet Scripture has answers to these also, so that we're not really left to ourselves in the interpretation of these things. Let me give you one of the great questions that's ever been asked in human history. The universe had a beginning or no beginning? We'd say had a beginning, right? Time, space, matter, all this junk had a beginning. God did not have a beginning. But they grappled with that, you know, because it seems like if we've got matter now, perhaps matter's always been, right? But it doesn't explain how we got here from there. We go to other great questions like, you know, the existence of God, but really the question is the existence of us. There's not really any doubt about the existence of God. How we got here is still in play. And so scripture doesn't really inform us about things that we could know through other means. It's really focused on telling us the things that we need to know that we can't find out through other ways. Then we get to this big one, free will and predestination. Oh, no, it's terrible. At the same time, it's a fundamental question of philosophy. You've got these people that are determinists that say everything's determined by the things that came before it, right? It's just like dominoes falling down so that all of history is just click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. And that's not Christians. And you have these other people that say, really, nothing's determined. It's all chance and things are just happening by accident. Everything's accidental. Even God doesn't know what's going to happen because how could he? And that's not us either, right? So it's an interesting question. I want to focus on this, we must maintain the mystery, shouldn't we? I mean, just because God tells you something 
does not actually mean you get it. And it was easy, right? There are all kinds of philosophical mysteries about existence and, and the human being and even salvation in which God sometimes tells us exactly the truth of it, but that doesn't mean that we understand it. That just means it's been revealed. Let me give you the other great conundrum that the church always goes through. Doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. There's a couple of good you know, $5 words there you can throw around to your friends and, and you know, impress them with your loquacious uh, intelligence. And <laughs> hypostatic union means that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time and yet one person. Now, we can understand that it's true and we can see that there's no logical conflict in Scripture, but to say that we really get it is maybe pushing a little too far, Right? When God describes himself as not being one person and one being as we are, but that he's one being, one God, that exists eternally as three persons, obviously that's a little tough. And sometimes people even bring up, well, it's a logical contradiction. No, it would be a logical contradiction to say that there's one God that's really three gods, or that he's one person and really three persons. To say that there is one God that exists as three persons just means he's different from us. To say that we understand how that all works, no, we don't. But to say that it's true, well, it's been revealed to us in such a way as that we can apprehend with the mind its truth, even if we don't understand it in an infinitesimal level, right? So that the Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit are God, and they even have interactions with each other, each having all of the attributes of the deity, and yet being different distinguishable persons. Let me tell you something really obvious that maybe we never thought of. God the Father did not die on the cross outside of Calvary. The Holy Spirit didn't either. The Son came and was manifested in human flesh and died for us. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, not the Father exactly. The Father created all things, and he created them through the Son by the administrations of the Spirit, but they all took on different roles according to their great covenant of creation that they had before the world began so that they would create all things by them and for them for the manifestation of their own glory. But there are other mysteries here. There are. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Now, the reason that we look at Ephesians is just so we can see that the language that we're using here is not the language of theology, and it's not the language of philosophy, And we're not trying to impose something upon the scriptures, but we will see here that the scriptures are imposing something upon us. Here's the thing. You guys will all remember Martin Luther. We're coming up on the Reformation month here where we'll focus on the doctrines of the Reformation because really that was the reclaiming of the gospel after a few hundred years of darkness and error, right? And Martin Luther was famous for, you know, saying, you know, terrible things about reason. He said that reason was terrible, You should stay away from it. And yet he was a rigorously logical person that was constantly telling you to be reasonable. Now, the reason that he could do both is all he meant is unbounded reason without scripture as a guide, without scripture as a narrative to bind reason and logic to truth. Reason is just autonomy. And the devil, even in the beginning, said, did God really say? Trying to get Adam for just a second to look away from the revelation of God and look to himself for his own reasoning, logic, and understanding. You know, when we grapple with the sciences, really there will never be anything that is proven and true by the sciences that won't be conversant or reconcilable with Scripture. But there have been many times in history where the sciences have taken to us to a place where almost all of human society believed something the sciences were saying that turned out to be manifestly false, right? So it's easy to take the sciences and move away from Scripture into our own reasoning and find out that the sun is not really the center of the universe. Something the Bible never said but was taught in every university in the world at one time, right? So we come to here and from verse 3 it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Now, this entire chapter, we're basically just going to read it without a lot of commentary so that you can dwell in it and it can wash over you. But what I want you to focus on is the sheer, utter, overwhelming number of pronouns poured into this chapter, right? It's not I, me, we. It's him, he, he, and uh, his, yeah. Notice, this focus of this chapter is it's all about him. It's not really about you. You're the recipient You're not the cause. He's giving, you are receiving. If you take the analogy of law, we call it a third-party beneficiary agreement where there was a relationship between the father and the son, 
that brought about a good blessing for a third party that has no legal rights in the transaction. They even have no duties. Sometimes when people want to leave something to an heir or to a grandchild or a great-grandchild, they set up this relationship where they get the benefit, right? But they can't do anything about it. As a matter of fact, to a certain age, they can't even touch the money because we know what they do with it, right? Let's just hold it in trust until they're 30 or 40 and know how to make good decisions, right? Otherwise, it'll just be a cool car and, you know, trips to Florida or whatever. So here he says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Read along if you have a Bible, because it's important. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How much influence do you think you had on God's decision-making before the foundation of the world was laid? I would venture not a whole lot, but that's just me. How much influence did you have on your parents before you were born, for example? Not a lot involved with you in the transaction. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. In Christ, as a we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That's a lot of pronouns, right? That's a lot of his, he, him talking about that he did it and he willed it and according to his purpose and for his glory and that all of these things were manifested in a plan that was in existence before the world was even created. Now, is there a philosophical conundrum there? Is there a paradoxical thing going on there in which we obviously have free will and make decisions and yet God also has a free will and he's got a few decisions to make of his own, right? And how do these two things line up? You know, go to the philosophers for that. All the way to South. Even is such a thing as free. Discriminatory. And Calvin argues for free will and Which don't because of human existence instead of not tends to save in familial lines of his Holy Spirit place of what is free will home those until it starts to get
find out. And according to his name, and talking gravity is always. Happiness. If but if we're fallen. They talk and run. Love so deep and invasive within the very and inclined to choose the good. One, it's free to do only. Be spiritually spiritual. Romans chapter nine. Chapter nine. Verse 14. This problem with so many of the Jews that followed the law not coming to Christ. And so there's something there that needs to be explained because Romans is a very Jewish book. And he's explaining things that require a great depth and background of Old Testament understanding. My conscience bears with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, what he means by that is exactly what you'd think. People that he's related to physically. Now, many of you have probably gone through this same type of suffering and anguish in suffering for the salvation of someone that you know and love that's related to you, and you want them to be saved so badly that you would wish yourself accursed for the sake of their salvation. So he's saying exactly what you think he's saying. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. So he starts to explain why some of them come to Christ and some of them don't. The first thing he wants us to know is because it's not the word of God failed as if that were an option. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Still talking about the flesh, not all of those that are the physical descendants of Israel, which is another name for Jacob, after whom was named the entire nation of Israel, not all of them are true Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now you remember, Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael. One was the son of the promise that God had promised him. The other was the son of his flesh. And so God uses this, this uh, Old Testament understanding of the text to explain what's happening here. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said. In other words, this is what was promised to Abraham in chapter 17 of uh, Genesis. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, let's unpack that for a minute, because what he's saying is exactly what you're reading him saying. The only reason that he can possibly put something in there that says before either one of them were done good or had done anything good or bad is to disabuse us of the idea that it was because God knew they were going to do something good or bad. In other words, the idea that God really knows what somebody would do under possible conditions, and so his grace and his miraculous work in them is contingent upon whether or not they're going to do good or going to do bad, he says exactly because it's not that. As a matter of fact, they were what? They were twins. So even if you think to yourself, well, it's because they were Israelites, he says they were twins, and one was called by God, and the other was rejected. Let's read it again. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, so it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Before they were born and before either one had done anything good or bad. Now everybody, you know, every once in a while somebody will try to run around this. And they'll say, well, but he did know when they would be born and that they would do things good or bad. And we know from the text that, yeah, but... You know, Jacob did bad. They both did bad. So it's really not upon them being good or bad. The only reason he puts this in the text is so that we will not think that it's because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that one would be good and one would be bad. That's exactly what he's not saying. Do you see the text fighting against the idea that the mind wants to compel? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, the only reason he could ask that rhetorical question is if the natural question that would come to mind is, well, then there's injustice on God's part because he chose one and rejected the other even though they hadn't been born and hadn't done anything good or bad. Do you see how the question there is contingent upon a certain reading of the text? The only reason it makes sense for him to ask a rhetorical question is that he thinks we will ask that question. Now, if God just looked down the corridors of time and saw that one would do good and one would be, do bad, we don't have a question. We know it's because of them. It's because one was good and one was bad, right? But he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, one of the reasons this is so powerful for us is it starts to steal something from us, something very important to that darkness in the heart of man that compels them to choose one thing instead of the other 100% of the time. What it starts to steal from you is your autonomy. What it starts to steal from you is your choice. What it starts to steal from you is that if you do this, God has to do that so that you have him all wrapped up. You have him exactly where you want him, and now he's compelled to do as you command. And yet he says here, it does not depend on human will. As we saw in Ephesians, the answer of the Apostle Paul there is, it does depend on a will, just not yours. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, so he's got two people that he talks to about this. He calls you back to Moses and he says he told Moses this. And then he calls us back to Pharaoh, not exactly a patriarch. And he says, for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Does anybody remember how God manifested his glory and made his name great in all the earth through Pharaoh? By destroying him. Plagues. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world with the greatest armies. And God showed that it was just dust on the scales of history. His power is so great. And so he raised up Moses saying, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And I'm having compassion on Moses. And then he raised up Pharaoh. 
So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He hardens. Look at the next verse in case you think maybe I'm misreading this. Look at the rhetorical question. He does the same thing again. He says, you will say to me then, because he knows what you're thinking. Why does he still find fault? Because who can resist his will? Who can resist the will of God? You? You know, you're just the flower of the field, the grass that jumps up for a moment in the sunshine, and the next day you dry out and you're blown away by the wind. The idea that you can contend with the will of the Almighty, it's just ridiculous. It's laughable. And so he says there, you, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Because no one can resist his will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now his answer to this is not always immediately compelling. There's a great uh, set of theories that go through jurisprudence and ethics. And one of them is, are things good uh, because God likes them, or does God like them because they're good? Let me ask you again. Are things good because God likes them? Or does God like them because they're good? Because if he likes things because they're good, that means there's a principle of goodness above him, and he just appreciates it because he's a, he loves fine art. I don't know. The other is that good and evil themselves are determined by God so that when we say it's not good to murder your brother in cold blood, it's because it's an expression of God's own will and determination within himself that such a thing be evil instead of good, Right? And so he goes to God's power to justify the expression of his power, even in salvation. He doesn't go to some principle behind God through which we judge what he does as right or wrong. Now what this means is what God does is right because he does it. Now I know that's not immediately satisfactory, but think about the gravity of who we're talking about. We're not talking about me. There's nothing that's right just simply because I do it. Although I use that argument on my kids all the time. Why, Dad? Because I said so, right? doesn't really work. But when God does it, does it work? He made all of us. He made the universe. It's all his. What he does with it is in his hands. It's in his power to do so. Even justice and injustice are just the collocation of the expression of his uninvestigatable will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Shall what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of his mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has, same word, called. Even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. And as indeed he says to Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. So here's the way the Apostle Paul explains all of this. He does not get rid of the mystery for us. He doesn't get rid of the problem of the distinction between the fact that we obviously do have free will and make independent decisions with the fact that ultimately when it comes to our salvation, that is simply not one of them. He doesn't deal with all of the different mysteries having to do with the philosophy of human decision-making and determination. He says in one way, everything's determined, and in another way, nothing's determined. Everything's determined because there are previous causes and effects, but that determining figure is a free God that can decide anything he wants at any time. And so really nothing's determined, right? We don't get an easy out through philosophy, but we do get an answer through Scripture. And what the answer is through Scripture is that when it comes to a person coming to know God through saving faith and a person continuing down that road to their own discretion of disbelief, that's not left up to the mere interpretive will and the rational understanding of the human being. That's an act of the Holy Spirit upon the soul in which he brings us to spiritual life from spiritual death and grants us this gift called faith. And so within the context of the church and talking about calling and called and chosen and all of these things, God's doing a choosing. Why does he do it? How does he do it? We don't know. What's he doing in here that I have faith before I didn't believe? We don't know. We talk about the Holy Spirit as if we have some kind of a a minuscule apprehension of what's going on. But what we know is, before I was blind, 
and now I see. Before we were dead, and now we're alive. Before we were deaf, and now we hear. So in all of these things, in in talking about the church, we want to be very careful to give all glory to God and reserve none for ourselves. Because this is the thing that changes us in our sanctification and our walk in life. As long as we're holding one finger on our own goodness or ability, we don't walk fully into the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, as you call us to be holy and as you call us to be good, we have to always maintain, Lord God, that there's nothing good in us but everything good in you. That every good and perfect gift were given from above in the person and work of Jesus Christ, so that even all of the goods that we have, Lord God, are your goods. We praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise. proclamation. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.